You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day-to-day to learn a little bit about the pelvis. And we talk a lot in NASM about an anterior pelvic tilt and a posterior pelvic tilt. And sometimes that's just difficult to understand. So I'm going to do my best today to help break that down, to help you better understand what's going on in an anterior and in a posterior pelvic tilt, what muscles might be tight, what might be short, what might be pulling you into that pelvic movement or that pelvic stasis holding you there, and then what might be a little weak or underactive that's keeping you from being in a neutral pelvic position and why all of this stuff is important. So I'm going to start with this. One time, it was like 10 years ago, maybe longer, I was teaching an exercise science workshop in Long Island, New York. So out in Syosset's the name of the town. So I was heading out to Syosset from New York City on the train. And there was a woman sitting across from me. She was, uh, she was getting off. I think Huntington is right before Syosset. So she's, she's bent over to grab her bag throw it over her shoulder and take off. But when she was bent over to get her bag and when she took off, she didn't change position. She was just bent over the whole time. And what I mean by that, it was such a significant anterior pelvic tilt that her spine, she looked like she was bent over, but to make up for that anterior tilt, she extended her spine so that her torso was upright. But if you lengthened out her thoracic spine and that bend at about T12, L1, L1, L2, if you straighten that out, she was pitched forward like she was going to do bent over rows. There was such a significant anterior pelvic tilt. The first thing I thought about is how awful that must feel for her back. And she maybe doesn't know that there's any solution to that, that she could feel better, move better, function better. Um, And I get the question a lot in some of the workshops that we teach, right? Is that structural or is that functional? It's a great question to ask. Now, structural means, is that just how my body is? Is my body, do I have a more significant arch in my lower back and an anterior pelvic tilt? Or is it functional, which means that there are muscles that are causing this to happen. Now, we get this question quite a bit. It comes up more often when we talk about scoliosis. So we're talking about back position a little bit. So let's talk about scoliosis and lordosis and kyphosis just for a moment. When I have an increased arch in my lumbar spine, that's called a lumbar lordosis. It's an excessive or increased lumbar lordosis or an arch in my low back. The kyphosis is an outward facing curve. That's more like my thoracic spine. And if we have an increased kyphosis, that is called an excessive kyphosis, that posterior facing curve. Now, a scoliosis is an atypical lateral curve in the spine. Sometimes they're structural, sometimes they are functional. So when I was young, And we were in our PE class, we'd have to take our shirts off in front of coach. And 
to look at our spine, they had us lean over and touch our toes. Now, why did they have us do that? And I think this one's pretty interesting. As we go into spinal flexion, if we have a functional scoliosis, which means it's not structural, that's not just the structure of the bones, but it's muscles causing that to happen. As I reach forward to touch my toes and I go into spinal flexion, the scoliosis goes away. So that's how we know it's a functional scoliosis. Well, if it stays there, then it's structural. Unfortunately, we don't have a simple test to find out whether or not we're structural or functional when it comes to um, whether or not somebody has an increased arch in their spine. So what we might do is we just might have them go into a posterior pelvic tilt and an anterior pelvic tilt and see if they can move through those ranges of motion. If they can move through the ranges of motion, then they're not stuck in an anterior pelvic tilt. Now, let's identify what this means and why it's called that. Because sometimes I get the question, like I get it, if you don't understand it, you just have to memorize it. An anterior tilt means this. So what is it? And then we'll talk about why it's called that. So if you look at your pelvis and you're standing upright, so you're listening to this show, you're standing upright, and then you say, I'm gonna go into an anterior pelvic tilt, you are going to arch your back. You're going to keep your torso upright, arch your back so your butt's sticking out behind you, all right? You should, you'll probably feel that in your low back, right? So when you do that, that is an anterior pelvic tilt. And I get this question, Rick, why do I feel it so much in my posterior if it's an anterior pelvic tilt? And I think that what we're getting confused about here is we have to have a point of reference. The point of reference is not the butt. The point of reference is not the pubic bone. The point of reference is the top of the pelvis. So now let me break down the bones that make up the pelvis, and then we'll talk about how this tilt functions. The bones that make up the pelvis. If you put your hands on your hips, so the waist is the space between your lower ribs and the top of your pelvis. So you go to that space, and when you feel those bones at a skeleton, it also looks like Mickey Mouse ears. That bone is called the ischium. The ischium are the rounded sections of the pelvis. Now, there are bones that you sit on in the pelvis. Those bones are called the ischium. Those are called the ischium. And then the bone that most of us probably are familiar with already, just because it's in the pubic region, the bone there, uh, right in the pubic region of the pelvis is called the pubis. So I have my ilium, my ischium, no three bones work together. They form together and they create one side and another side. It's called an innominate. So the right innominate and the left innominate. What I love about this, it's like the people who were naming skeleton parts just gave up. They were like, I don't know what we should call it. Let's call it an innominate. And I believe it's Latin. It might be Greek, but it means no name. Innominant means no name. So it just means these, we're just, we're done naming bones. We've just run out of resources. So let's call it the no name. So I have my right and my left innominant, and they connect on the posterior side to the sacrum, right? And that creates the SI joint, the sacrum and the ilium, right? Those big mouthers. It's the side joint. And then on the front, it connects. So the pubis connects to the pubis, 
what's called the pubic symphysis, they connect there in the front. So we've got connections on the back to the sacrum, the, the pelvis, and connections on the front via the pubic bone. All right. So now I've got these, these bones set up. Now, if you take the pelvis and look at it like a box, the top of that box, or a lot of times you'll see in textbooks, think of it like a bucket, right? So the pelvis is a bucket. And the top, the ilium, where that is, where your belt line would be, where your waistline would be, if you said, hey, I want you to pour the water out of the top of the bucket, which way would you have to tilt it? And so you would stick the backside out, so you would move the lower posterior portion of the bucket backwards, and you would tilt the top, the superior part of the bucket, forward. And as that happens, it would create an anterior spill of the water. Well, think of the pelvis the same way, like a bucket and an anterior pelvic tilt would pour the water forward. A posterior pelvic tilt would be like a tucking position where it would pour the water backwards. So an anterior and posterior pelvic tilt. Now we talk about these a lot in NASM. You'll see it in our textbook. And if you come to the workshops, we definitely talk about it in the workshops. We talk about an overhead squat assessment. So in an overhead squat assessment, you might see an anterior pelvic tilt, more likely anterior than posterior. And we'll spend more time today about anterior pelvic versus posterior, but we address them both. So an anterior pelvic tilt, first of all, why is it such a big deal? Well, we just want to try to maintain more of a neutral position while we go through our movements. And the reason that is, is we're familiar with length tension relationship and that when we're in more of a neutral position, we are able to get greater force production from that. I don't look at everything. NASM through dysfunction leading to pain. That's not what we're, we're doing. We look at dysfunction and can it lead to pain? I think that's important to address. Looking at our movement patterns and understanding that most pain associated with posture has to do with moving out of, of what we refer to as either optimal movement patterns, and then also looking at performance outlooks. So let's identify some of the things that are going on here. In an anterior pelvic tilt, what's the situation? Well, the situation first and initially is that you have to look at an anterior pelvic tilt like hip flexion. So here's what I want you to do. If you're in a place where you can do this, I want you to stand up and I want you to lift one knee up. So you're going into hip flexion and you're standing on one leg and you're lifting the other leg up. So your knee is coming up towards your, your belt line. You see how that's hip flexion. Great. Put, put the leg down. So now go into hip flexion again, like a deadlift. So like an RDL, a Romanian deadlift. So your legs are relatively straight. Now you're just pitching forward, going into a hip hinge position. And that is hip flexion. Maintain a slight forward bend, Romanian deadlift position, slight. Stay there. And now just arch your back up until you're standing upright. That's what happens in an anterior pelvic tilt. That's an anterior pelvic tilt. Your pelvis is tilted forward. You are flexed forward. Pelvis on top of femur flexion. 
sometimes a lot of times we think only femur on pelvis flexion like we did when we were standing up pelvis stayed still femur moved uh, rdl is a pelvis on femur hip flexion and anterior pelvic tilt is a pelvis on femur hip flexion we are hinging forward it is a hip hinge we are pitched forward in that position all right and then we extend our spine instead of extending our hips in order to get into an upright position. What muscles are tight in that? Well, I know that we're already in a hip flexed position, right? So if we're in a hip flexed position, I gotta look at my hip flexors. What are some hip flexors that would be associated with it? Well, for, first of all, any hip flexor could be associated with it. There are primary hip flexors that are usually more greatly associated with it. Let's talk about those first. There's the psoas. So as there's so as major, there's so as minor. Uh, I can't remember what the numbers are, but something like 20%, 30%, 10%. I don't remember, unfortunately. So don't quote me on this. Don't have a so as minor. But doesn't matter, psoas major, which we'll refer to simply as the psoas, is gonna be one of the primary hip flexors, primarily associated with an anterior pelvic tilt for two reasons. One, it, it does hip flexion, and we are in a hip flexed position when we're in anterior pelvic tilt. But also, it does spinal extension in this position. So what happens is that all of the, the, the muscles of the psoas attach to about T12, so your last thoracic vertebrae, because you only have 12 of them, it's going to T12, and then it goes into the lumbar vertebrae, L1, L2, L3, L4, L5. Um, the spinous processes, anterior spinous processes, and the anterior bodies of the lumbar spine. So it does two things. As it gets tight, it pulls us into spinal flexion, and as it gets tight, it does spinal compression. This is why it's such a big deal and highly associated with back pain is because its ability to create the anterior tilt, create the spinal extension that goes along with an anterior pelvic tilt, and because it compresses the spine, vertebra on top of vertebra, and that can lead to dispain, low back pain, low back discomfort. And those are things that we as personal trainers can address. I can't look at it and say, I'm here to fix your pain, but if I can see that you have an anterior pelvic tilt, I can at least address your posture and your movement patterns. And that may in fact help address your pain. All right. Thank you. I hope that's helpful. Uh, so let me, just reintroducing again today, what are we talking about? We're talking about movement of the pelvis, an anterior and a posterior pelvic tilt. My name is Rick Ritchie, and we're going to keep talking about this a little bit longer. So let's go into an anterior pelvic tilt. There's things on, the, on, on our spine, on the pelvis, that pull down from the front to tilt us forward. All the hip flexors, and we go through the list, right? So my iliacus, my so as my rectus femoris, almost all of my adductors, my TFL, my sartorius, sartorius, all of these muscles 
contribute to hip flexion. So they could be tight in this. And the longer we stay in that position, they may not be the initial cause, but they certainly are a contributor over time as they become shortened because of another muscle. And they just now are going along for the ride and now they are going to be short as well. All right, those are your hip flexors. Pulling anterior and down. What's, what's on the back? Something's on the back pulling the posterior up to create that pelvic tilt. What's on the posterior side? This one, you know the answer already because if you go into the position, you'll say, I feel that in my lower back. Well, what muscles are doing that on the posterior side? And that's going to be your erectors. Your erector muscles are going to be going, uh, creating that anterior uh, pelvic tilt on the posterior side. Other muscles that can do this, particularly muscles like the lats in an overhead squat, as I take my arm overhead, the lats attach to the posterior pelvis. They attach to a broad, thick piece of fascia in the back called the thoracolumbar fascia or thoracolumbar aponeurosis. And that attaches there and it clips the inferior angle of the scapula and then it goes underneath the arm. We're talking about the lats here and goes underneath the arm through the armpit and it attaches to the anterior medial humeral head. Well, not quite on the head, but close to the head. And we know it does stuff at the shoulder, but if those muscles are tight and I take my arms overhead, as I take my arms overhead, if I don't have enough room, I don't have enough range of motion because that muscle is tight at my shoulder, then I will steal the range of motion at the pelvis and the back will arch in order for me to get my arm all the way over my head. The back has to arch to do that. We know, using example, you can see how the, the lats can contribute to um, that, that shortening at the lumbar spine, especially in an overhead position. So you have to be aware of that when people are in this position as they go into overhead movements in particular to help them increase their range of motion and support their spine before you do the spinal loading that's pushing down on their spine. So that's an anterior pelvic tilt. We got muscles from the front, our hip flexors pulling down on the front. We have the erectors and the lats pulling up or superiorly on the posterior side, on the backside. What muscles are not strong enough? What muscles might be weak or underactive, allowing that range of motion to happen, allowing an anterior pelvic tilt to remain an anterior pelvic tilt? All right, so let's go back to the front side again. There are muscles that pull down on the front. Those are our hip flexors. What do we need to strengthen? There are the muscles that pull up on the front side. What muscles might those be? Well, rectus abdominis would be one. Our obliques, particularly our external obliques in this particular example, uh, even though internal obliques also have spinal flexion uh, capabilities as well. So it could be rectus abdominis, could be my obliques because they are also spinal flexors to help to contribute to posterior tilting, putting that into a neutral position. Well, I've got muscles on the backside that have been pulling up, creating an anterior pelvic tilt. What muscles should be pulling down or inferiorly on the posterior side? Well, 
I would say that a lot of people already in this position, so an anterior pelvic tilt, you have the hamstrings in a lengthened position and people say, oh, I feel my hamstrings. My hamstrings feel very tight. And they may feel tight primarily because they're in a lengthened position holding on to the ischium. That ischium, that sit bone that you sit on, remember ilium, ischium, and pubis, the hamstrings grab hold of the ischium and they're being stretched out and they don't like it and they are crying, please, don't leave me. And they're holding on, lengthened, holding on. <clears throat> this example of being a lengthened overactive muscle. So what do we do? We think, oh, my hamstrings are tight. I need to stretch them. But if you pay attention to the movement, the hamstrings are tight, but they're tight maybe because I'm in an anterior pelvic tilt all day long. They're constantly on stretch. They're constantly trying to realign us and it is not working. And they are doing too much work probably because other muscles aren't doing what they're supposed to do, namely the gluteus maximus. If we also look at reciprocal inhibition, if my hip flexors are short, tight, overactive, it can reciprocally inhibit the muscles on the other side, which would be my primary hip extensor, my gluteus maximus, if you want to help get out of an anterior pelvic tilt. Glute activations are going to be very good for your activation series. What should I do with the other one? Remember, let's go through the entire corrective exercise continuum. Muscles that are short, tight, overactive, you want to do an inhibitory technique to them. You want to do a stretch to them. Then you will follow up with the activation exercises to the muscles that we just talked about. All right. That's a anterior pelvic tilt. And then you want to do an integration, getting them to work through movement patterns where you try to maintain neutral spine. And if you're listening to this as a coach, as a personal trainer, cueing that neutral spine, not flat back, neutral spine, highly important to help people to maintain that core stability. Core stability, navel drawn in, we think is highly indicated, but also abdominal bracing, which is creating that tightness around the core to help support the core and getting people to understand that helping them protect their back and protect their spine. Very, very, very important. Let me also mention something. I think this is interesting. It's, we call it the hip flexor paradise or the psoas, not paradise, paradox. The psoas paradox. And the psoas paradox is that we talked about as we go into hip flexion or an anterior pelvic tilt, right? That it pitches our pelvis forward, but also creates spinal extension. Here's the other thing. Once you get past about 90 degrees, and I'm not exactly sure, it's been a while since I looked this up, but it's been about 90 degrees, that once you pass 90 degrees of flexion, the psoas now is no longer going to be a hip, uh, a spinal extensor, but it will contribute to spinal flexion. It's a spinal flexor once your knees uh, or, or once your hips pass about 90 degrees of hip flexion. And so for all of you who are out there doing lower ab exercises and you feel that burning in your lower abs, you know what that burning is? It's your psoas. Your psoas is doing that work. That burning in your lower abs is your psoas muscle. That's what you feel burning.
because most of the exercises that you do for, quote, lower abs are a bunch of hip flexion exercises like knee tucks and hanging uh, knee pull, straight leg exercises, straight leg hip flexions, or those, those partner-assisted spinal terrors where you hold on to your partner's legs, they're standing up, you're lying on your back and you lift your legs up to them and then your partner aggressively, but with a sickening smile on their face, throws your legs to the ground and you have to lift your legs back up. And you're thinking, man, it's such a great lower ab exercise. I feel it a lot in my back. It's a lot of spine feeling going on here, but it's a great lower ab exercise, except anything you feel in your lower abs probably aren't your lower abs but it is your psoas and the majority of people that love doing those exercises and feel it in their low back in an attempt to get to their lower abs are simply exacerbating the problem that they're trying to solve for anyway. So interesting, that point, posterior pelvic tilt, a posterior pelvic tilt. Remember all the muscles that we wanted to activate to get people out of an anterior pelvic tilt? probably the ones helping to at least contribute to a posterior pelvic tilt, except for what's going on on the posterior side. So a posterior pelvic tilt, anterior pelvic tilt. First of all, let me talk about this. Uh, the, these have been in the NASM universe since I started. And these are just names that we call, and not always, but since I've heard, since I've been at NASM, anterior pelvic tilt, they referred to as a happy cat. Happy cat position. You know, when a cat just arches its back and its butt and its tail is in the air. Happy cat. That's an arch in the low back. And then there's the scared dog. Scared dog is the posterior pelvic tilt. So I could do this. I mean, right now I'm going to make this noise and my dog Rocky, who's in the other room, is probably going to freak out just a little bit and go into a posterior pelvic tilt. Because when he does something like goes after food that might be on the table, things he shouldn't be getting, and I go, ah, ah, like that, and he tucks that tail underneath and he drops into a posterior pelvic tilt. So with my clients, I might not say anterior and posterior pelvic tilt. I might say, hey, you're in a happy cat position. I want you to go, and I'll show them, this is happy cat, this is what you're doing, and I'll go into an anterior pelvic tilt where I stick my butt out, I arch my back, and I say, this is what it looks like. I want you to go into more of a scared dog position and I'll start to tuck until I get to a neutral position or I might say go all the way into a scared dog position. All the way happy cat, all the way scared dog. Anterior tilt all the way, posterior tilt all the way. Find your neutral. Find your neutral. It may not be neutral neutral because you might be too tight to get there, but finding your neutral is gonna give you good practice. Also people say, how do I know if I'm in an anterior pelvic tilt? And I say, try to go into an anterior pelvic tilt. And if you try to go into an anterior pelvic tilt and you don't move, you are already there. You're already likely in an anterior pelvic tilt. All right, what about a posterior pelvic tilt? What about that scared dog position? Posterior pelvic tilt, what pulls up or superiorly on the anterior side. So the front of my body is something that pulls the pelvis into a posterior tilt. So it's lifting up. So the rectus abdominis attaches to the pubis on the front of the pelvis. And as it shortens, it pulls up on the pelvis and it creates spinal flexion or it creates a posterior pelvic tilt. Now the obliques, as we talked about earlier, can participate and can do that as well. 
All right, so abdominals, my legs. How did that? Well, what's pulling down on my pelvis, posterior side? So we talked about glutes, glute max being a primary fix for an anterior pelvic tilt, but not so much being the cause of a posterior pelvic tilt. Usually what happens is that the glutes are not firing in that position because they are generally what's known as a phasic muscle, which means we need to smack them around a little bit to get them to wake up. And the hamstrings tend to be what's called a tonic muscle, which means we need to smack them around to get them to calm down. So we do the smacking around for overactive muscles via something called self-myofascial rolling. So we might get on a foam roller to do a release, but those hamstrings pulling down on the pelvis create a posterior pelvic tilt. Another muscle that could be a large contributor, because remember we said the glute max probably is not contributing to this, but the hamstrings are, and the posterior fibers of the adductor magnus. Now adductor magnus is a long muscle. It goes from the front of the pubis all the way back past the ramus of the pubis and towards the ischium. And that portion of the fibers, as they get tight, create a posterior pelvic tilt. Well, what are some ways that I can stabilize and get out of that, find more neutral? Well, we got to look at what it looked like from before. So some of the muscles that we need to address, well, what causes me to maybe get out of that? I just need to arch my back a little bit. So it might be my erectors need some work. I need to strengthen my erectors muscles. It might in fact be that you need to strengthen your hip flexor muscles, my iliacus, my psoas, my TFL, my rectus femoris, my adductors, excluding the posterior fibers of the adductor magnus, but that would include the anterior fibers of my adductor magnus, stertorius, all muscles that contribute. So I might practice some hip flexion in a stabilized core position. And the way I like to do this, I might do the standing or I might do it supine, which means lying on my back looking up, and I might wrap mini loops around my feet and hold my knee, hold my knee and my hip in a 90-90 position, maintain one in that 90-90 position and press the other leg out. So my hip flexors have to stabilize in that position while being in a neutral spine. And practice, I think that's a great exercise. It's a good starter exercise. And you can get into more hip strengthening exercises. And there's nothing wrong with strengthening your hip flexors. But if you have an anterior pelvic tilt, you have to be careful with it. You have to be careful with it. So not a lot of the Pilates hip circles. And this is the thing. A lot of people go to Pilates to help get out of some of the low back pain. And you have to have a very astute instructor and this is why it's difficult in a group class for even Pilates instructors who are astute, who notice that there's a problem and they're programming hip circles and they're firing up those hip flexors it can be really challenging. It could be counterintuitive for the back pain that people have if it's caused through an anterior pelvic tilt and compression of the spine through that. Anyway, something to think about. I hope you found this interesting. I hope you found it helpful. For those of you who made it to the end, thank you very much. And also, as you're listening to this and you're not entirely sure what all these muscles are, I know it's a challenge. I know it is. So thank you for listening through the whole thing. But also because listening to it more is like listening to a different language. 
And instead of just trying to rote, memorize everything, just listen again and see if you don't necessarily memorize it, but you start to understand it. And that's the important part. Once you start to understand it, you've learned it, and you don't have to create this rote memory of, oh, this muscle, this muscle, this muscle, that stuff's going to come. As long as you create it and allow it to be part of the language. The problem is we don't speak this language. You don't just go to the gym and people talk like this. And you're like, well, I guess I have to learn it for the test. But when you start having conversations with other professionals in the field and you want to hang with them, you want to sound like you know what you're talking about, when you're speaking with a, um, a physical therapist, a chiropractor, or a medical doctor, or an osteopath, this is, this is being part of the practice. This language is part of the practice. It's how we set ourselves aside to be professional, and it also gives us the language to be more specific with what we're talking about, rather than up, down, up and down. What's up and down? But we are more specific with our language than I don't need to try to um, uh, ascertain what up means to you or what down means because I can use a very specific language. I need a superior pull on one side and a posterior pull or a caudal draw on the other side. Gives me a better understanding. Anyway, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you listening. Uh, my name is Rick Ritchie. We've been talking about the pelvis and anterior and posterior pelvic tilt. If you have questions about it, feel free to reach out. And if you have topics that you'd like to learn a little bit more about, please holler at me. You can reach me at my email, rick.ritchie at nasm.org, or you can hit me up on Instagram and social media where I'm most active, which is dr.rickritchie. And I'd be happy to um, engage with you, to learn a little bit more about what you're learning about. Thank you for those who have uh, taken some of the things that I talk about. You add it to your stories and you promote the podcast through that. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate it so much that I always repost them. So keep it going. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.